If you would, turn to Psalms 110, verse 1. Psalms 110, we'll start in verse 1. If you would, read along with me as we go through Psalms 110. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will scatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you, God, for the Psalms. God, I thank you for just how wonderful and amazing your word is, God. How interconnected it is to, to itself, to each other, Lord. The consistency of Scripture, the central message of Scripture, the, the central hero of Scripture is seen throughout, Lord, from Genesis to Revelation. God, I pray as we go through this deep psalms this morning, Lord, that we are in awe of you, we are in awe of your word, Lord, and, and most importantly, we are in awe of Jesus. Be with us this morning, Lord, as we go through your word. In your son's name, amen. Last week we went through Psalm 73, which is one of my favorite psalms there, there is in the whole book of Psalms, about a man struggling with his faith, a man jealous of the wicked, wondering why they seem to prosper, a man de- depressed, discouraged, and frustrated. Yet a man, as we went through the Psalms, halfway through the Psalms, gains perspective, which leads to repentance, which leads to reflection, which leads to joy, and which leads to action. This man proclaiming and teaching the goodness of God to the people. Psalm 73, as I said many times throughout this series in Psalms, is so human. It's amazing to think that God inspired Psalm 73 to be put in Scripture. Today, we're going to be looking at Psalms 110, which is so ridiculously deep, so interconnected from from Genesis all the way through Revelation, it's hard to believe a human wrote it. The goal today really is just to praise the Lord. Psalms 110 is actually a celebration psalms. It's a classification. There's different classifications of psalms. So the goal really is to be in joy-filled celebration together as a congregation and really to be in awe of who Jesus is. Hopefully, we will be able to build our faith as we go through this psalms. I love apologetics. Apologetics is the intellectual defense of the Christian belief. It's an intellectual argument for the faith. And there's a bunch of different arguments out there. The moral argument, the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the ontological argument, and my favorite, the presuppositional argument. But if I had to be honest, out of all my studying, 
with apologetics and all those different arguments, what strengthens my faith more than, than anything else, more than any of those arguments, is just Scripture. How amazing Scripture is. It couldn't have been made up by man. I know humans wrote it, but they had to have been inspired by God. I have studied Scripture now for over 12 years in-depthly. I, I have BA in biblical studies, so that's four years worth of study. And I have an MDiv, which is supposed to be three and a half years, but longer. Studying Scripture. And honestly, weekly, I put at least 20 hours into to studying Scripture. And I've been doing that for over 10 years now. And I, I never get bored. I, I can't reach the end of it. I'm always learning something new, and it's life-giving. Let me just ask you a question. And if you're not a Christian this morning, or if you're skeptical of the church and Christianity, let me just ask this question for all of us. If the Bible, if Scripture is truly written, written by this all-powerful, if he's the author of, of, of Scripture, this all-powerful God that spoke the universe into existence, when, he, when did you expect it to be amazing? Awesome, remarkable, astonishing, even miraculous. One of the miracles of Scripture is the consistency of Scripture. Let me just put it this way. Imagine if you turned on the radio and you're flipping through 66 different stations. And as you flick through them, you notice something very odd. The song styles are different. Right? You have country western, pop, classical, rap, opera, rock. But each new vocalist, each new song is developing the same exact story, the same exact narrative. Wouldn't you find that odd? You'd be there's something more is going on here if that's the case. I just think of like Twilight Zone, someone in the car flipping through. But that's what the Bible's like. It's this unity, this unified message in a diversity. I mean, think of the diversity of Scripture. 66 documents, what we call books, 66 different books, over 40 different authors. Think about that. Over 40 different human authors written over a period of at least 1,500 years. I mean, think how different 100 years ago was. I mean, different authors, some young, some old, some professionals, some peasants— Soldiers, civil servants, fishermen, farmers, some kings. Different genres, which is just different types of writing. Historical narrative, population statistics, poetry, travel diaries, law, prophecy, family trees, biographies, geographical surveys, song lyrics, proverbs. Yet one central message. Man created by God. Man's rebelling against God, God's plan to redeem and save man. Not only that, one central hero throughout all of Scripture, Jesus. One theologian said this, as well as having a a single theme, the Bible has a single hero. Each of the 66 documents, even the ones written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus, are all singing the same exact song, and that song is consistently Jesus. The Bible is amazing. I mean, there's no other book like it. There's not even one even, even close. 
Right? I, I know, I think it's a popular uh, con- or misconception in our, our culture to think that there's all types of, of books out there claiming to be from some kind of deity. That's just not true. There's actually very few books out there claiming to be from a deity. Some of the popular ones that we're familiar with, like the Quran, one author or one prophet, right, Muhammad, one time period, one culture, right, one language, or the Book of Mormon, one author or prophet, Joseph Smith, one time period, one culture, one language, but the Bible, right, a unified message mixed in a diversity of authors, time periods, societies, cultures, languages, and so on. The Bible is unified diversity, and, and it's what we should expect, right? It, it, it models God, who is unified diversity, unified, one God in essence, diverse, Father, Son, Spirit. It's miraculous. I mean, if you're not catching this, let me just kind of, let me put it another way. Just think about this, and consider this. What if a multitude of authors wrote a book and they get to write one page in this book, right? Each author gets to write a page. What if each author wrote in different genres, right? Different types of writing, song lyrics, historical narrative, proverbs. What if each author all came from different backgrounds, completely different backgrounds? What if each, each was written in different centuries, in different countries, and some even in different languages, without any master plan to follow? What is the likelihood that that would make any sense at all, that book? It's impossible. There's no way. Yet that's exactly what Scripture is. It's amazing. The consistency of Scripture is impossible outside of supernatural intervention. In other words, it's a miracle. We're about to go over Psalms 110, which was written a thousand years before Jesus. And even if you're a skeptic this morning, there's no skeptics out there that, that don't believe this was written before Christ. Everyone believes it was written before Christ. In fact, Psalms 110 is the most quoted Psalms in all of the New Testament. It's quoted once in Matthew, three times in Mark, twice in Luke, once in Acts, once in Romans, once in 1 Corinthians, once in Ephesians, once in uh, Colossians, and eight times in Hebrews. Obviously, the psalm was important to New Testament writers. The New Testament writers saw the psalms as consistently and faithfully pointing to Jesus, the psalm. So let's take a look at it, the short psalm. The classification of the psalm, I said it earlier, is a, it's a royal celebration psalm. It celebrates the king of Israel as God's representative ruler on earth. It celebrates, in other words, God's relationship with the king of Israel, and through it, his people. And it's exactly what we see in Psalms 110. Here's the outline of Psalms 110. It's very simple. There's two promises that God, Yahweh, gives to the king of Israel. Right? You have a promise in verse 1, and then you have this victory that's going to come because of this promise. Then you have a promise in verse 4. And then there's this victory that's going to come because of this promise. So let's go through it and look at this outline. The first promise is in verse 1. It says this, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's the promise. God is promising the king of Israel something. 
Verses 2 through 3 is the victory that's going to come from this promise. Look at verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in, in holy garments. And from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The second promise is found in verse 4. This is another promise to this king. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we see the second victory that comes from this promise in verse, verses 5 through 7. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The overview of the psalm is actually quite simple. Two promises to the king of Israel from Yahweh, the Lord God. Two victories as a result of these promises. Now let's take a more in-depth look at this psalm. Look at verse 1 again. Psalms 110, verse 1. This is the first promise. The Lord, right there, stop right there, the L-O-R-D. I've said this before, but... Let me say it again. They're all capitalized. And that's because the Israelites, when they wrote the Old Testament, they thought the name of the Lord, which was revealed to to Israel, Yahweh, was too holy to say. So instead of saying Yahweh, they would just put the consonants without the vowels. We actually don't know, because they did that, the true pronunciation of Yahweh. That's a guess. And every time they got to these letters, these consonants, they wouldn't say Yahweh because they thought it was too holy. So what they would say when they got there was Lord. And we have translated that into our our Bibles nowadays, that when you see L-O-R-D capitalized, that means Yahweh. Yahweh, the name of God, Yahweh says to my Lord, those aren't all capitalized, and that's because that's the word Adonai which means master or king. So this could be translated appropriately, Yahweh says to my king, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Again, this is a royal psalms. It's the relationship between Yahweh and the king of Israel. And this makes sense, right? The king is at the right hand of God. Therefore, who is truly on the throne? Yahweh, God. I mean, that makes sense in the history of Israel. Think about it. Israel didn't start with a king. They started as a theocracy. God was their king. What happened? First Samuel, they, they, they asked for a king so they could be like the other nations, and God gave them a king. Psalms 110 really shows us the relationship, how the relationship is supposed to be, be with God and the king of Israel. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my, my king, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord, Yahweh, is to appoint the true king of Israel. And he says to him, sit at my right hand. In other words, God is on the throne. The king is his representative. The king of Israel. It's supposed to be a, a theocratic the a, a ruler. Right? The king rules over God's people under the authority of God, in other words. And it's very close to him. He's at his right hand. To sit at someone's right hand is symbolic of a position of honor and power. God is the ultimate king, and the human king of Israel is his agent on earth, in other words. The psalm is promising 
the king of Israel victory. It anticipates the, the king's military victory as the king goes to war with his people. Many believe this psalm was actually sung before battle as a, a pre-battle hymn. Sung by the Israelites and King David at the time with the promise of victory to rally the troops. This all makes sense. But there's one major problem in this interpretation. Who is the author of the Psalms? Look at the prescript. A Psalm of David. The New Testament makes it very clear that David is the author of Psalms 110. Why is this a big deal that David's the author? Well, look at verse 1 again. The Lord, that's Yahweh. Yahweh says to my Lord. David is saying, Yahweh is talking to my king. Who is this king of David's? It's not Yahweh because Yahweh is talking to this king. Who is this Lord? It's Jesus. It's clearly Jesus. Turn with me to Mark 12, verse 35. Keep something in Psalms 110 because we're going to be back at Psalms 110. And if you want to follow on the screen, we should have all these verses popping up on the screen. Mark 12, verse 35. We have a lot to cover today. Hopefully, you get out in time. I failed first service, just to warn you. Mark 12, 35. And Jesus taught in the temple. He said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Why don't you think about this? The the Christ, the anointed one, the one that's promised, is supposed to come from the the lineage of David. So he's a son of David. And Jesus is asking the scribes, the expert of the uh, Old Testament, saying... How do the scribes, how do you guys say that he is the son of David? It's an interesting question. Verse 36. This is Jesus speaking still. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, and a side note real quick, we see the dual authorship of Scripture right there. David wrote, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He declared, listen, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. That's Psalms 110 that Jesus is quoting. Look at verse 37. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? In other words, this promised Messiah predates David. David calls him Lord. David calls him king in Psalms 110. He is the greater David. Psalms 110 is not about David. It's about Jesus. Peter makes the same observation in the New Testament. Turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 32. Acts chapter 2, verse 32. This Jesus, right, Peter's preaching, he's teaching, he's talking to um, uh, the people that put Jesus to death. This Jesus... God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. In other words, Jesus was died, he, he, three days he was raised from the dead, and we all witnessed him being raised from the dead. Being therefore exalted, he ascended from there, at the right hand of God, that's Psalms 110, at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, 
that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven. In other words, Psalms 110 is not about David. But he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that's Jesus, both Lord and Christ. Psalms 110 is about Jesus. David is writing about Jesus in Psalms 110. This is what Derek Kinder says. He's a theologian. He says, like Joshua, who fell on his face, surrendering his command, his authority with the words, what does my Lord bid of his servant? David, in Psalms 110, so to speak, falls on his face and worships the man who stands before him, the man who sits at the right hand of God. Psalms 110 is pointing to Jesus. Now turn back with me to Psalms 110. I want to make some observations of verse 1, and to be honest, verse 1 could be a whole sermon series within itself, but we will get through it today. Psalms 110, verse 1 says this, David writes, the Lord, that's Yahweh again, Yahweh says to my Lord, my King, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. A couple of quick observations I want to make about verse 1. First, Again, we talked about this. The Lord in in Psalms 110 is pointing to Jesus as the greater David. And quickly, David calls him Lord. Mark 12 makes it clear that that the Lord, Jesus even says that the Lord predates David as the greater David. In Acts 2, Jesus, Jesus ascends into heaven. We talked about that. Not David. Jesus ascends into heaven at the right hand of God. David didn't. But Hebrews even takes this a step further. Hebrews 1.13 says this. And to which of the angels has he, being God, ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus is greater than David. He's greater than any man that's ever walked the face of this earth, and he is greater than any angel that's ever lived. The fact that Jesus was raised from the dead and sits at the right hand of God proves it. That's the first observation of this verse. Second observation is this. The Lord is sitting. Jesus is sitting. Therefore, Jesus' work on the cross is finished. Sit at my right hand. Hebrews 10.11 says this. And every priest stands. Listen to that word. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. The Old Testament, right, the priest would sacrifice the lamb and then would have to do it again. He would stand and work as he would sacrifice lambs over and over and over and over again, and none of them took away sins. They all pointed forward to the true Lamb of God. Verse 12 says this, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice himself, For sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. In other words, he sat because it was done. It is finished. Your sins are forgiven. For all those that have put their faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Third observation. Jesus is waiting. He's waiting. 
Verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until... Until what? Until Yahweh, I, until I make your enemies your footstool. Hebrews 1.10 again. Let me just, or 10.11. Let me just read through this again because I want to get to verse 13. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all times a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 13 Waiting, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. In other words, the end is coming. Jesus awaits for the last surrender of his enemies. This one verse in in Psalms 110 Verse 1 displays the divine person of Christ, his power, his salvation for his people, and how it all ends for everyone else. And that's just the first verse. And that's the first promise. You will be king, a great king, a king greater than David. Well, here's the first victory. Look at verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter. As king, Jesus, in other words, will, will rule with a mighty scepter. A scepter is a sign of, of sovereignty. Jesus will rule with the authority and sovereignty of God. Look at verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely. There's a poetic contrast here. The enemies will be ruled. And the Hebrew word for ruled here is a a strict, stern word. They'll be forced to follow Jesus. On the other hand, your people will offer themselves up freely. In other words, this, this king that's getting talked about in the Psalms is such a great king, such a great ruler. His enemies will fear him and his people will offer themselves freely to him. On the day of your power, right? That's the day the king goes to war, right? The day of the Lord, the day of battle. And the next part of this is actually a really difficult text in Hebrew. But this is what it says in the ESV. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. There's a lot of debate on what this, this uh, verse here is saying, but almost everyone agrees that, that the king's followers will be abund- as abundant as dew in the morning, In other words, verse 3 is saying this king will be such a great king, such a great leader, that there will be a host of volunteers ready to go to war for him. They'll give their lives freely for him. They will be willing, living sacrifices for him. Does that sound familiar? Romans 12.1 I appeal to you, therefore, brothers by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Listen, this is our calling as Christians, right? Christians, meaning we are followers of Christ as our Lord and King, freely giving ourselves to Him, sacrificing everything for Him. Psalms 110.3, your people will offer themselves freely. Why? Why? Because he's worth it. 
because Jesus is worth it. This is what Philippians 2.17 says. This is Paul, all the suffering and all the sacrifices he, he's made. Even if, if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. I am glad and rejoice because Jesus is worth it. Actually, I want you guys to see this. Turn, turn with me a second. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Listen, Christians are weird. Or I should say it this way. Christians are supposed to be weird. The, the society should see us, the community of Tehachapi should see us and go, you guys are strange. Look at what it says in verse 1 here. Second Corinthians 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. There's these churches of Macedonia, and Paul's saying God has blessed them, right? The grace of God, that's a free gift. And we want you to know about the gift God has given to these churches. What is this gift? Verse 2, for in their severe test of affliction. Wait, what? That's the gift? Affliction? I want to be clear. This is Paul, who's been beaten a number of times, stoned once, shipwrecked once, bit by a poisonous snake. I mean, we just can keep going. He calls this a severe test of affliction this church is going through. Some kind of persecution. Look at the next line. For in a severe test of affliction, there are abundance of joy. That's weird. That's strange. Look at the next part. And their extreme poverty, not poverty, extreme poverty. Well, what happens there? Their extreme poverty has, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They have nothing, yet they are giving. That's weird. Right? That's strange. Not only that, look what it says in verse 3. For they give according to their means. That means, like, here's all I can give. As I can testify beyond their means. Not only that, look what it says for, for their account. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part of the relief of the saints. In other words, please take more, Paul. I know you're not letting us, but just take more. Why? Why would they do this? Why, why are Christians supposed to be so weird? Look at verse 5. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. You know what they say when they give like that? You know what they say when they go through affliction? They say just hard, rough circumstances. You know what they say? They say Jesus is worth it. He's worth Take everything. Jesus is worth it. And they, by the will of God to us. In other words, Jesus is worth it. If God says give it to other people, I'll give it to other people. Because he's worth it. Amazing. Turn with me to Acts 7, 54. I love this passage. And I go to it a lot because it amazes me. Acts 7, verse 54. It starts off verse 54. I missed all the context, so let's, let's grasp it. Now they, now when they, so that they here are the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders... Now, that when they heard all these things, they're enraged. They heard Stephen rebuking them for their unbelief of Jesus. 
and they were enraged. I love Stephen. And they ground their teeth at him. That's the attitude of hell. Verse 55, but he, this is Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. Let me give you the end of this. This is a spoiler. Stephen gets, gets martyred. He gets stoned to death here. And if you want to just think about this, being stoned to death is horrible. Stones getting thrown at you until you die. And that's about to happen in a few minutes here. Right? And he knows it's going to happen. You just look at the, the context of the story. He, he knows that, that if he speaks truth to these people, if something bad's going to happen, it's probably death. And he sees their anger, and they start rushing at him. Right? He knows this is the end. And guess what? The heavens open up, and he sees the glory of God. Let me tell you something about the glory of God. We were meant for the glory of God. God made us to find our satisfaction and joy in the glory of God. You know how I know that? Yosemite. The Pacific Ocean. Even non-believers run to Yosemite in the Pacific Ocean. Why? Grand Canyon. Why? It's not because they get there and go, look how amazing I am. It's not to build their self-esteem, which our culture says that's what we need to do. No, they rush there to forget themselves and bask in the glory of God. Whoever made this is glorious. And I find satisfaction and joy. Everything in life is crazy, but look at this rock. Look at this canyon. We find our joy in the glory of God. So with that thought, the heavens open up and Stephen is looking straight into the glory of God. Here's my question. When is the most joyful time in Stephen's life? as he's getting stoned. I think God is faithful. Saw the the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That's Psalms 110. He's seeing this God on the throne of Jesus standing at the right hand of God. You know, I I believe verse 56, like I love this passage here. I really believe... Stephen forgets he's getting stoned. Like, he forgets what's going on. He's so blown away by this glory. He's so joy-filled. He's like, he's, he sees this and he goes, everyone, look! The guys that are stoning him, like, look up! Look what it says in verse 56. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's quoting Psalms 110. He's just seeing it. But these men are so angry and full of rage that they don't hear what he's saying, verse 57, but, but they cried out with a loud voice, trying to, trying to get his voice out. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Look at verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. In other words, Jesus, you are worth it. You are worth it. Verse 60, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Man, we're going to be late, but none of this is in my notes. Guess who was there? Paul. You think God answered his prayer, Lord, hold the, do not hold the sins against them? 
Yeah, he did in Paul's life. And Paul went to be the, the greatest apostle writing most of the New Testament. I love Stephen. Right, I'm sidetracked. Where are we? <laughs> Psalms 110 says, Your people will offer themselves freely. Freely. Because he is worth this. King is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Turn back to Psalms 110 with me. That's the first promise. First promise is, is you will be keen and you will be victorious and you'll be, you'll be such a great king, this king that's coming. People will follow you freely, sacrificing everything for you. They'll follow you into battle. Here's the second promise. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Second promise is this. You, this king, are a priest forever. Now that's interesting for one really big reason. In Israel, the king had a role, and he came from the tribe of Judah. And the priest had a role, and he came from the tribe of Levi. And the king was not to do the priestly duties, and the priest was not to do the kingly duties. It's like our, our, our separation of church and state. Besides, the king worshiped the one true God, which our government should do. But there is a separation in Scripture in Israel. The king often got in trouble when he mixed those roles, when he started doing the priestly duty. That was the job of the priest, not the king. That's how Saul lost his kingdom. 1 Samuel 13. He didn't wait for Samuel to do the sacrifice. Instead, he did the sacrifice. That's the priest's job, not the king's job. That's why this is so interesting, because the first promise is this guy, this king, you're going to be king. The second promise is you will be priest forever. Look at verse 4. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who's this Melchizedek? It's not much, actually, about him in the Old Testament. There's only two places he's mentioned, one here in uh, Psalms 110, and the other place in Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 18. Verse 18 says this, Genesis 14, 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. This is before the Mosaic law. This is before Moses. This is before Israel. And he is a priest who also is a king. He's king of Salam. What's that? Well, it's a shortened name for Jerusalem. He's king of Jerusalem. He's both king and priest of Jerusalem. So when Psalms 110 says, you are our priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, it's saying this Lord that's being talked about in Psalms 110 will be both king and priest like Melchizedek was. And if that's all we had in the Old Testament, that's what, that's, that's the, what it would mean. But, but the New Testament actually expands on this meaning. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. Old Testament, this means he's both, right? This Lord is both king and priest. 
But the author of Hebrews expands on this. Look what it says in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, Kina Salam, priest of the Most High God, met with Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. First, or He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Shalom, or Salam, that is, king, king of peace. Just verse 2, just so you know. Again, Hebrews is written to Jews, so Jews would have picked up on this. The, the name Melchizedek means, literally, the king of righteousness. But he's king of Salam, which is a shortened word for Jerusalem. What does Salam mean? Well, it's the same as Shalom. It means peace. Jerusalem is the city of peace. So Melchizedek is king of righteousness and peace. Who's that? It's Jesus. Look at, look at verse 3. He, this Melchizedek character, is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Hebrews is expanding on the meaning of Psalms 110. Some believe that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate Christ, that that was Jesus, literally. I don't personally believe that. I believe this Melchizedek character was a type of Christ. In other words, his life pointed to Christ. What's going on in this verse? Well, real quickly, the, the book of Hebrews, we need to start here, was written to Jews, right? It was written to Jews. Why would a Jew have a problem with Jesus being a priest? We've mentioned it before. He's not a Levite. He's not from the line of Le- uh, the Levites, of Levi. He's from the line of Judah, which is the kingly line. The Mosaic Covenant makes it very clear, the law that says that the priests must come from the line of Levi. Well, here's the argument that's being made by, in Hebrews. Jesus is priest in the order of Melchizedek, not Levi, which predates, Melchizedek predates the Mosaic Covenant. On top of that, Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy, which means, I believe, that he didn't get this priesthood from, from his heritage. His father and mother genealogy aren't talked about anywhere in Scripture. In other words, there's no son of, son of, son of. He wasn't priest because of his heritage. And it also means his priesthood continues forever. Because we don't see it into his office. Because his office wasn't a part of some covenant, like the Mosaic Covenant, that ended. I mean, we can spend so much time on this. But I have six minutes, so... The writer of Hebrews goes on, and you could, I encourage you to read it. He claims that Melchizedek is the greater priest. He's greater than Aaron and the Levites. Right? He's older. We just talked about that. He's first. He predates Aaron and the Levites. They were all in Abraham. And he was the one that blessed Abraham, not the other way around. Abraham's the father of the Levites, father of Israel. And he blessed Abraham, and, and the greater always blesses the inferior. And Abraham gives a tenth of what he earned to Melchizedek. Not the other way around. 
In other words, Melchizedek clearly points to Christ. He's a type of Christ. Now turn back to Psalms 110. I just think the consistency of Scripture is amazing to me. The first promise is this. You will be king, a greater king than David. The second promise is this. You will be priest in the order of Melchizedek. In other words, a greater priest than the Levites. And if you think the Psalms couldn't speak any higher of this Lord that's coming, speak any higher of Jesus, look at verse 5. This is the second victory. Verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. Now I want you to pay very close attention to the personal pronouns. And Jesus modeled this. The personal pronouns are extremely important because this is an inerrant. Who is the your in this entire Psalms? Look at verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The your here is this priest king that's been talked about in this whole entire Psalms, this coming Lord. It's Jesus. Look at verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. Again, this personal pronoun, your, is pointing to Jesus. Now look at verse 5 again. The Lord is at your right hand. In other words, God is now being called Adonai, and he, God, is at the right hand of this king. That's amazing. I mean, the boldness of this statement. It's a glimpse into the Trinitarian relationship a thousand years before Christ, before the New Testament. The Lord God is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. In other words, he will be victorious. Consistency in Scripture. This is exactly what Psalms 2 is saying. Remember Psalms 2? Psalms 2, verse 5, it says this, "Then, then, Then he, this is God, will speak to them, the wicked, in his wrath, and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That is Jesus. I will tell of, of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is a warning. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Kiss the King. Pay homage to this King. Show loyalty to Jesus. Humbly submit to Jesus as Lord and King. Verse 12, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. New and Old Testament. Jesus is coming back with wrath towards the wicked. 
But here is the good news, the gospel, verse 12. Blessed or happy or joy-filled are all who take refuge in him. All those that put their faith in him, in the Son, will be saved. Psalms 110, it's just amazing to me. And it tells us that Jesus is, is the great priest, greater than David. He's a great, great, great king, greater than David, great priest, greater than the Levites. And, and he is worth so much. He is worth so much. He's worth sacrificing everything for. You know why he's worth it? Because not only is he the great king, greater than David, not only is he the great priest, greater than the Levites, he's also the great sacrifice. The Lamb of God. Jesus came the first time in humility. Lived a perfect life. He was the spotless Lamb. He, he never sinned. And he went to the cross to die for our sins. But listen, be warned. He was raised on the third day. And he ascended to the right hand of God. And he is king of king and lord and lords. And, and he will come back one day. This is what Charles Spurgeon says about this Psalms. He shall judge. He shall, he shall judge among the heathen or among the nations. All nations, in other words, all people shall feel his power, either yield it to great joyfulness or be crushed before it. My question this morning is, who are you? Where do you stand before this great king? Psalms 2 says, Blessed are those who take refuge in him. In other words, blessed are those that put their faith in him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God Almighty, Lord, the Psalms are just amazing at how they point to your son, how they elevate him to where he should be, Lord. As we have a picture of the New Testament of this humble man that came and lived this humble life, Lord, and died on the cross for our sins, Lord, let us not forget that the Old and New Testament, that this man, Jesus, is also the divine Son of God who sits at the right hand of Yahweh and who will come back one day, Lord, in wrath. Yet, for those that put their faith in him, trust in, in, in the cross and what he has done for them, they will find salvation, Lord. God, we praise you. We praise you that, that you are Lord of Lord and King of Kings and Savior of the world. In your son's name, amen.